You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 9th day of July, 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast, and as always, invite you to check out CorbettReport.com, where, of course, you can find all of the show notes for today's episode, as well as previous editions of this podcast, and the other articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past five years. And I would like to once again remind everyone that this podcast is now also being made available as a vodcast. So if you'd like to see some of the video clips and things that I'm using in these episodes, you can go to CorbettReport.com and find the video. It will both be in the uh, show notes for the episode. It will also be under the video tab. So just click on videos at the top of the screen and you will find all of the videos that I'm doing, including this podcast and now the radio show as well, which you may have noticed is also being provided as a video podcast as well. So of course all of that is available through the RSS feeds and you can find more information about how to subscribe to the Corbett Reports RSS feeds on the subscribe tab. And finally today I would like to reiterate something that I said on the Friday uh, edition of the Corbett Report radio broadcast and that is some ways for people to help out my work and what I'm doing without necessarily supporting me monetarily because I know not everyone is in a position to do that and uh, and I do so deeply and genuinely appreciate the people who are doing that. But if you're uh, unable to to do that, I would humbly suggest that if you would also like to support the work, but in a non-monetary sense, there are some great ways to do that. Not only just telling people about the website or directing them to links or uh, making copies of this podcast and passing it around, which of course I wholeheartedly encourage, but you can also do things like uh, going on the affiliate relations tab of the uh, republicbroadcasting.org homepage. And if you look at that, I'll put the link in the Show notes. It tells you step by step, for example, how to request Corbett Report Radio on your local radio station, getting in touch with your station's program manager to try to get Corbett Report Radio on the airwaves in more cities, which of course would be a great thing to accomplish. Or, of course, you can also uh, get in touch with the podcast uh, producers or the radio show hosts or whoever it is that you listen to or view on a, on a daily basis or uh, sources of information that you trust, you can also get in touch with them and humbly suggest you, my, yours truly, myself, as a guest on their program to talk about whatever issues you think are important. So of course, that type of support is also deeply appreciated. But on that note, once again, we have a ton of information to get through. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 234 of the Corbett Report podcast, How to Carve Up the World. Every now and then, a video comes along that is so head-scratchingly bizarre in its concept and execution that it makes you wonder why on earth it was created in the first place. Such is the case with a video that was first published by The Economist magazine in 2010, entitled Redrawing the Map of Europe. Suppose countries were like people and could shift from one neighbourhood to another. Britain, for example, humbled by its dire public finances, could move closer to southern Europe, for example to a new position near Madeira. A bumpy journey there might have another good side effect, allowing Wales and Scotland to become separate islands. In Britain's place should come Poland, which has suffered quite enough in its location between Russia and Germany, and deserves a chance to enjoy the bracing winds of the North Atlantic and the security of seawater between it and any potential invaders. 
Belgium's incomprehensible Dutch-French language squabbles are redolent of Central Europe at its worst, especially the nonsenses that Slovakia thinks up for its Hungarian-speaking ethnic minority. So Belgium should swap places with the Czech Republic. The stolid, well-organised Czechs would get on splendidly with their new Dutch neighbours, and vice versa. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania should move to a new location somewhere near Ireland. Like Ireland, they've bitten the bullet of internal devaluation, regaining competitiveness by cutting wages and prices, rather than taking the easy option of depreciating the currency, or borrowing recklessly as Greece has. The Baltics would also be glad to be farther away from Russia and closer to America. Belarus, currently landlocked and trying to wriggle out from under Russia's thumb, would benefit greatly from exposure to the Nordic region. Its influence played a big role in helping the Baltics shed their Soviet legacy. So Belarus should move northwards to the Baltic, taking the place of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Kaliningrad could shift up the coast towards Russia proper, while the western and central parts of Ukraine should move into slots vacated by Poland and Belarus. Germany, with the Ukrainian border now only 100 kilometres from Berlin, would start having to take that country's European integration seriously. Some reordering of the Balkans is long overdue too. Macedonia, Albania and Kosovo should all rotate places, with Macedonia taking Kosovo's place next to Serbia, Kosovo moving to Albania's slot on the coast, and Albania shifting inland. Paranoid Greek fantasies about territorial claims from the deluded Slav irredentist in the nameless northern neighbour would be even more unsustainable. It would also make sense to move Switzerland north, where it would fit neatly into the Nordic countries. Its neutrality would go down well with the Finns and Swedes. Norway would be glad to have another non-EU country next door. Austria could shift westwards into Switzerland's place, making room for Slovenia and Croatia to move northwest too. They could join northern Italy in a new regional alliance. Ideally, it would be run by a doge from Venice. The rest of Italy, from Rome downwards, would separate and join with Sicily to form a new country. Officially, it might be called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Some unkind people, quite unfairly, might give it another nickname, such as Bordello. Of course, the moves don't create a perfect fit, so a welcome side effect would be to make space for previously fictional creations, such as Antony Hope's Ruritania, Hergé's Sildavia and Borduria, and Vulgaria, the backdrop for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. European geography can be as frustrating as the continent's history, or the more reason, therefore, to daydream when you can. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the good folks at The Economist magazine that, oh, by the way, just happens to have a Rothschild by marriage on its board, likes to fantasize about moving the pieces of Europe around on the chessboard as if it were a chessboard for, uh, for them to move those pieces around at will to better suit their own ideas of the way Europe's politics should play out. Well, a very bizarre and perhaps a throwaway piece of uh, fantasy, even as they call it on at the uh, theeconomist.com, where you can find this, uh, they call it uh, fantasy cartography. So I'll put in the link and uh, in the show notes. So by all means, go and take a look at this fantasy cartography and make of it what you will. It is ultimately just a bit of a fluff piece, but it does, at the very least, I think, expose something of the mindset of people who do have the power and resources to actually affect changes on the map. Because, of course, it is important to remind ourselves of something that we're not often reminded of, that the map as we know it today has not always existed in the form that it exists currently. And our idea of nation-states and the types of nations that exist is, of course, just a historical contingency. 
And that is an important thing to keep in mind because we have to ask ourselves, why did the nation states come into being in the way that they are with those lines on the map drawn in the places that they are? Some of them for obvious geographical or historical reasons. Some of them were drawn up in, in rooms hundreds of miles away by people who had nothing to do with the history or uh, the, uh, the, the location of that, that place that they're drawing the lines on the map about. So let's, for just as a little reminder to ourselves, again, I'm, not, I'm sure everyone out here understands this on a conceptual level, but let's look at how this works a little bit more specifically, because it is once again important to keep in mind how order out of chaos is very much the, the ruling ideology of those who should not be in power, but unfortunately are. And, uh, and it is the way that historical uh, progress has always been made. Those with the power to really draw the map, really create the world, carve out pieces of the world for themselves, continue to do so to this very day. But let's take a look at some of the, the most blatant examples of this from the not-so-distant past, although perhaps uh, distant enough that a lot of us uh, don't learn about it or don't think about it very often. So let's go back to the Great War, the War to End All Wars, as it was called at the time, although the peace, uh, the peace to end all peace, as it has been called later with the, the outcome of World War I. Well, why is that? Well, that's really the result of some secret agreements that were taken place, uh, that were drawn up and that then were enacted out in the wake of World War I by the imperial powers of the time, of course, uh, Britain, France, and, well, Russia at the beginning of World War I amongst them. And that all played out, again, in secret, behind closed doors, in conspiracies that, again, go to show that conspiracy is uh, very often a fact and not a theory at all. And we can look at that by some very specific agreements made by, between specific historical personages that we can now actually identify. So as one example of that, let's take a look at the Sykes-Picot Agreement that was signed during World War I, but not really revealed to the rest of the world until after World War I was finished and the victors were divvying up the spoils. A few months later, the Sultan's government signs the Treaty of Sevres with the Allies. Under its terms, large parts of Turkey will be handed over to France, Italy, Greece, and Armenia. Istanbul and the Dardanelles will fall under international control with a military presence. Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, and Palestine will belong to London, and Paris will control Syria and Lebanon. The treaty is a public version of a secret agreement made between Britain and France back in 1916. At that time, British diplomat Mark Sykes and French diplomat Francois Picot redrew the map of the Middle East to accommodate Western greed for land and oil. The Sykes-Picot agreement uh, was an arrangement between Britain and France arrived at uh, about midway through the war uh, as to how the Middle East uh, would be divided in terms of, of their own interests uh, when the war was over. Uh, this was um, uh, an agreement that, that um, it was essential to hold, um, Sykes felt, and because he had been told that by his friends in the Arab Bureau in in Cairo, that it was um, of, of greatest importance 
that the British should know what they could give away to the supposed Arab leader, Sharif Hussein. Uh, and before they knew what they could give him, they had to know what they were giving the French. Yes, surprise, surprise, barely one year into the Great War, in November of 1915, the great powers were already secretly meeting to plan out how best to divvy up the spoils created by the expected downfall of the Ottoman Empire and the breaking up of its uh, holdings around that part of the globe. And surprise, surprise, yes, Britain and France already were licking their chops at the expected spoils, and lo and behold, that all fell into place after the war, and the public was absolutely none the wiser about the entire plan and the uh, the agreement that had been reached by their representatives until November of 1917, when it was finally leaked to the public because the Russians were a bit upset that they had been left out of the spoils because they had to drop out of the war because of the Bolshevik re revolution. So they leaked the details. It was eventually picked up in the Manchester Guardian, and lo and behold, the public were finally let in on the secret of what their leader were planning to do behind closed doors. And as you would expect, that created a lot of tensions and frictions as uh, people started to realize that this was all part of a greater game to really divvy up the spoils of the earth for the greater benefit of the great powers themselves. Not really surprising, but still, uh, the fact that it's done in secret uh, should be instructive as to how these types of things really work and should be a, a very at least give people who like to talk about crazy conspiracy theories pause for thought about these types of world historical events that we now know after the fact certainly did take place. Well, along those lines, there were many, many other secret agreements and uh, understandings that were reached during the Great War that had similar very large effects on the world as we know it, and in fact the world as it continues to take shape around us even today. And one of those was the Balfour Declaration, written by David Lloyd George's foreign minister, Sir Arthur Balfour, to none other than Lord Rothschild. And this was the beginnings of really the, uh, the official British support of the Zionist ideal of creating a Jewish homeland in the Middle East, in Palestine. And it really began... Well, all of the uh, the troubles of everything that's come out of Israel and, and Palestine over the past several decades, that this is where really it, the rubber met the road for the Zionists. So a very, very interesting piece of history also to come out of World War One, and I think uh, an excellent documentary that does a good job of breaking down exactly why this was important strategically for the British Empire and what it all meant is a, a video called Imperial Geography. So let's watch a bit of that talking about the Balfour Declaration. In 1914, World War I breaks out. The Turks align themselves with the Germans against the British and the French. The Turks experience a series of defeats in the Middle East and elsewhere. The British seize Palestine. In their imperial designs on the region, and in particular Palestine, the British were making promises all over the place. For one, they entered an agreement with the French called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, in which they divided the Middle East. The French would get Lebanon and Syria, and the British essentially would get everything else. The Arabs were promised independence for their support in an uprising against the Turks. You may recall Lawrence of Arabia being a 
major figure in this particular episode. However, after World War I, the Arabs bitterly learned the truth of what was going on behind their backs. On November 2, 1917, the British Foreign Minister, Lord Arthur Balfour, wrote a letter to a British banker, Lord Rothschild, in which he said, His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the creation of a homeland in Palestine for the Jews. Often the Balfour Declaration is interpreted as some kind of official act of the British Parliament. It was nothing of the sort. It should be emphasized that it was a private letter to a private British citizen. Nevertheless, the Balfour Declaration historically has been seen by Zionists as the juridical basis for the State of Israel. In fact, in the May 14, 1948 Declaration of Independence, the Israelis specifically refer to the Balfour Declaration as a kind of Magna Carta, as an enabling document which gave it legitimacy in its claim on Palestine. At the end of World War I, the British looked with favor upon immigration from Europe by European Jews to Palestine. The Suez Canal was the key waterway linking the crown jewel of the empire, India, to Britain. Jewish immigration into Palestine was seen as a critical element in the protection of the Suez Canal. The Jews in Palestine were a bulwark against independent Arab nationalism, which was always seen as a threat. And here it's important to point out that from the very beginning of Zionist immigration to Palestine, the Palestinians resisted what was going on. Well, undoubtedly, the creation of the state of Israel is something that deserves a podcast unto itself. But for the time being, at least we can observe with the Balfour Declaration that that was a significant step along that road, a very important one, and perhaps uh, not incidental that that declaration was addressed to none other than Lord Rothschild, which will at least point us in the direction of where we should be researching into on that front. But at, at this point, we can at least stop and take a look at things like the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration and see in them the seeds of the world that we are living in today and many of the conflicts that we see in this world today directly attributable to the actions of these victors in the great imperial conquest that was World War I. And again, the history is something that lives with us in the present, and these things are historical contingencies that did not have to be this way. The world as we see it right now is not the world as it has to be, and we have to understand that it came about as a result of all of these contingencies stacking up on, on top of each other, and obviously directed by people with a certain agenda, an agenda to carve up the world in a way that was preferable for their own interests, and of course many different interests at that table in Paris in 1919, for example, where the Versailles Treaty and the peace was decided upon. And it was not just the Middle East, although of course we see a lot of the ramifications of what happened in the creation of these nation-states at that time in the Middle East, the drawing of the modern Middle East map in 1919. But it also extended to other parts of the globe, including East Asia. And that's a point that was, I think, 
greatly expounded upon by John V. Denson in a speech that he gave to the Mises Institute back in 2005. The entire speech is over an hour long and goes into a great degree of detail about uh, many different aspects of the peace accords of World War I and what developed out of them. I would highly recommend it, so of course I will put the link in the show notes so you can watch the entire speech. But let's just listen to a few minutes excerpt of that talking about how China was divvied up after World War I. Uh, China had, uh, as you know, uh, been jumped on pretty well by uh, Western powers throughout the 19th century. Everybody was chopping them up. They were the victims of maybe the most unjust war of all history, the Opium War. Britain uh, forced them to uh, take in opium, and they got Hong Kong. And the Japanese had been ferocious. They, as you know, Japanese had uh, industrialized, the only Asian country to do that. They had invaded uh, uh, China, and they had taken... Uh, Taiwan and Korea, and then uh, uh, Japan took uh, a big chunk of Manchuria by beating the Russians in 1905. But uh, China saw an opportunity now with this war to get back the, the main thing that they had lost that they felt strongly about, and that was called the Peninsula of Shantung. Shantung is just off the, uh, almost directly across from Korea, and it's uh, shaped in a, almost two peninsulas. It is the homeland of uh, Confucius. It has great sentimental and cultural uh, uh, value to the Chinese. And the Germans had what were called concessions there before World War I. That means you could come in and build a railroad, and you could do all your trading. You could send army troops in to protect your railroad. And it, uh, it was a euphemism for colonialism. But Germany had the Shantung Peninsula. So China came into the war, declared war on Germany for one reason, that was to get Shantung back from the Germans. They sent 100,000 people to, to the war in France. They were not combatants. They dug the trenches, they delivered the food, they hauled things around, and they lost thousands and thousands of Chinese who were killed in that war. So they, uh, they came to the uh, conference and asked for Shantung. And, uh, they decided that they would take it away from Germany, but the treaty said it goes to the worst enemy China has, Japan. Uh, it was the worst possible uh, result. They'd rather have Germany have it than Japan. So there was a protest in uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing in May of 1919, protesting the Versailles Treaty on Negotiations in Paris. And it was at that point that the intellectuals, many of the intellectuals in China decided that they could no longer trust the West, that there was no way to deal with them. And so what we need to do is to go to the, the new country that uh, is, seems to have so much promise, and that's the, uh, the Soviet Union. So the communist movement was born in China in May of 1919 as a protest against the Paris Treaties. Uh, some of you may have, uh, have read about the big movement in America in 1949 when the Civil War in China resulted in uh, the Chinese Communist de Mayo defeating Chiang Kai-shek and sending him. He goes off to Taiwan. Many people say, how did we lose China? Where did we go wrong? You know, Roosevelt made Chiang Kai-shek take communists into his government. And people say, well, that's what did it. The Paris Peace Talks is where China... Uh, went to the Communist Party. And here we are in the 21st century with China becoming, I think, will become the, uh, the industrial giant of the world. 
and leave us far behind by the end of the 21st century. And what a shame it is that they're a communist country. We think that communism is dead. And here, maybe the most uh, 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 fearful thing in the world is for this great industrial country, which I think it will become, is a great communist power. And it starts in May of 1919 at Tiananmen Square as a result of giving Shantung to the uh, Japanese. Once again, I will recommend you go and watch the entire lecture there by John Denson. Again, very interesting, and he's clearly done his homework on the 1919 peace accords and the ramifications that we are still feeling to this present day from the new world order that was created out of the chaos of World War I. All of those terms are used very advisedly. And again, we can see it really echoing all the way throughout the globe and right down to the present day with the types of nation states that were literally just drawn on a map in a conference room somewhere halfway around the world by people who in many cases had no relation whatsoever to the countries that they were pronouncing upon. So a very interesting state of affairs, and I think I hope we've gone at least some way towards establishing that principle that from the chaos of a great war can come the order that they want to, the victors of that war want to establish. So really, we are left with three alternatives when we establish that principle. The first is that the great powers and the leaders, the, uh, the self-appointed ruling elite of those countries, understand this order from chaos principle, but they're just too kind-hearted, just too loving, too too beneficent to ever actually use that knowledge of the order from chaos to create the chaos in order to extract the order. That is, for example, to start a war in order to break up the Ottoman Empire and divvy up the spoils, for example. Or the second alternative would be that they're too stupid to figure out this order from chaos uh, principle, and thus have no interest in starting wars or causing mayhem around the world. Or the third, which for my money seems the most likely, but I'll let you decide for yourself. They are fully aware of this principle and thus they, the power ruling elite in any given age and every given, in any given society will try to create conditions of chaos in order to extract that order. And what better form of chaos to start than a war? For example, the First World War. How did that all come about anyway? What what really led to the First World War? Well, there are, of course, many academic and historical treatises that you can read on that very subject, but why don't we turn to someone who has become something of an authority on this subject in the last decade or so? Her name is Margaret Macmillan. She's a fellow Canadian, um, and she wrote pretty much wrote the book on the Paris 1919 Peace Accords and the Versailles Treaty and what came of that in our modern era. It's uh, called Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, and it was uh, it, it is universally cited as one of the most thorough, uh, well-researched, scholarly uh, examinations of what actually took place in Paris in 1919 during the Peace Accords. And I will recommend it to people out there who haven't read it, because it certainly is extremely well-researched, and there is a lot of very interesting and verifiable information contained therein. But there are some caveats and provisos to that recommendation. As, for example, John Denson goes on to note in his lecture, it's somewhat curious that uh, Margaret Macmillan, although some people might not know that, is in fact the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George, of course, one of the men who was there at the conference divvying up the spoils, in his case for Great Britain. 
and the uh, perpetuation of the British Empire. So perhaps a little bit of bias going on there, but be that as it may, it's also interesting that she ends up concluding that really there's no way uh, to draw the line, as many people have in the past, between the Versailles Treaty and the reparations that were extracted from Germany and the rise of the Nazis and the, uh, the birth of World War II. She uh, takes all of those facts and basically says, no, 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 Hitler sprung fully formed out of the head of Zeus or whatever the case may be. There was there was no, no laying of the groundwork in World War I which is a bizarre thing to conclude. And it makes you wonder about her and her uh, her affiliations. Is she one of these people who believes that uh, the leaders of the world are just too stupid to figure out the order from chaos principle? Or maybe they're too kind-hearted? Why was World War I started in the first place? Well, why don't we listen to Margaret, Margaret Macmillan, the uh, author of Paris 1919, six, six Months That Changed the World, talking about this at a forum on the Arab Spring that was hosted recently by none other than the Council on Foreign Relations. So I can't resist now a last question. Uh, why did World War I happen? <laughs> um, it's, it's very simple. I can tell you in five words. Um, it was all a mistake. <laughs> Just... <laughs> it was all a mistake. Well, that settles my intellectual curiosity on the subject. I guess we can just put that question to bed. But for those who are not satisfied with a response like that, we could turn to for a more serious answer to someone that longtime listeners of this podcast will know well by now. That's Norman Dodd, who was the head researcher of the Reese Committee, a congressional investigation that was formed in the 1950s to investigate the activities of the tax-exempt foundations of the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, etc., and it was in his research for that commission that uh, Norman Dodd was able to gain access to the meeting minutes of the Carnegie Corporation going back to its inception in 1908. And the things that he found there are very surprising, but extremely interesting, which is why we go back to this testimony time and time again, because it is so important. This is one of the most important interviews that I think I've ever seen recorded, so I certainly hope people are out there spreading the word about Norman Dodd and what he was talking about. But let's just take a little section of that where he talks about an alternative idea of why World War I came to pass. We are now at the year 1908, which was the year that the Carnegie began operations. And in that year, the trustees, meeting for the first time, raised a specific question, which they discussed throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people. And they conclude that no, no, no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then in 1909, they raised the second question and discuss it, namely, how do we involve the United States in a war well, I doubt at that time if there was any subject more removed from the thinking of most of the people of this country than its involvement in a war. There were intermittent shows in the Balkans, but I doubt very much if many people even knew where the Balkans were. 
Then finally, they answer that question as follows. We must control the State Department. And, the, uh, and then that very naturally raises the question of how do we do that? And um, they answer it by saying, we must take over it and control the diplomatic machinery of this country. And finally they resolve to aim at that as an objective. Then time passes and we are eventually in a war, which would have been World War I. And at that time they record on their minutes a shocking report in which they dispatched to President Wilson a telegram cautioning him to see that the war does not end too quickly. Well, what else can I say other than once again to exhort those who have not watched the entire Norman Dodd testimony to go and do so? And for those who have watched it, please, please try to explain to other people why this is so important and get them to also understand this information. But having said that, again, people who have been listening to the Corbett Report for any length of time will probably know about Norman Dodd and the things that were discovered in the meeting minutes for the Carnegie Endowment back in uh, since its inception in 1908 and going on into the, uh, the later years there as he talks about in that interview. Some extremely fascinating stuff, and I hope that one starts to get the understanding and the impression that carving up the world is not necessarily like we saw in the economist fantasy cartography exercise of simply drawing lines on maps and moving things about. It can also mean, and probably more fundamentally means, changing the mindset of a country, changing the lives of a people, and no more mean, no more effective means is known to man than war if your aim is to do that so world war 1 was the inevitable outcome of that well Again, for the skeptical people in the audience, and again, I applaud you for keeping your skeptical hat on at all times, you might want more detail about how that was accomplished. How did these well-connected, wealthy elite insiders really control the State Department, grab control of the reins of power, and direct American foreign policy in the way that they wanted? Well, there is a documented, verifiable history, a trail of cookie crumbs that we can pick up on that front and we can elaborate exactly how that was done. And I will now direct you to another lecture, which is another hour and 42 minute lecture, which I am going to exhort you to watch in its entirety with the caveat that I myself have not yet done so because I only encountered this uh, this speech during the course of researching this episode. So I haven't watched all of this speech yet, but from what I have watched, this is some pretty incredible stuff and very, very specific, very well documented. So I hope people will go out there and take a look at it. It's a speech by someone named James Perloff, who is the author of a book called The Shadows of Power, The Council in Foreign Relations, and the American Decline. And in that speech, uh, which I believe occurred in 2011, it's undated, so I'm not exactly sure, but sometime around that time, James Perloff goes into some degree of detail 
to pick up the the details and the pieces of exactly what Norman Dodd was talking about and what the Carnegie meeting minutes were talking about in a general sense. Well, this is the specific people working for the specific organizations that accomplished the task of getting America for for one involved and embroiled in World War One, which furthered the aims of the people who are elite and wealthy and serve to benefit uh, in terms of being the victors who get to divvy up the spoils. So let's listen to an extended clip from this this presentation, which once again, I hope you'll go and watch in its entirety, with James Perloff describing the Council on Foreign Relations and how it rose from the ashes of World War I. Well, when the Federal Reserve uh, was being planned on Jekyll Island in 1910, the president at that time was William Howard Taft. And uh, Taft was opposed to the Aldrich plan for a central bank. For that reason, the bankers decided to get rid of him. And the man they chose to replace him was Woodrow Wilson. Now, uh, Wilson, prior to running, met with Bernard Baruch, who was part of the cartel. And he promised Baruch he would do four things if he was made president. He would lend an ear to advice on who should occupy his cabinet. He would support a central bank. He would support an income tax and lend an ear to advice if a war broke out in Europe. Now, the problem was how to get this stiff-looking professor from Princeton elected over the very popular incumbent, William Howard Taft. The strategy they used was to split the Republican vote. J.P. Morgan and company put money on the former Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt, who ran what's called the Bull Moose, the short-lived Bull Moose ticket. And Republicans split their votes between Taft and Roosevelt and Wilson got elected with only 42% of the vote. Watch the career of Woodrow Wilson take off after the establishment gets behind him. In 1910, he's a political unknown, president of Princeton, no political experience. 1911, with the establishment behind him, he's elected governor of New Jersey. You have to give this guy a little political experience before he can run him for president. 1912, with the full power of the media, which in those days meant newspapers behind him, Wilson's elected president. In 1913, the Federal Reserve and income tax become reality, his first year in office. 1914, World War I begins. 1915, the Lusitania goes down. Wilson hides the manifest, if you remember that. 1916, Wilson is re-elected on the campaign slogan, he kept us out of war. But as soon as he's re-elected, he moves to get a congressional uh, declaration of war, which he achieves in 1917. 1918, the Germans surrender. America's entry into the war having turned the balance of power against them, and in 1919, the Paris Peace Conference convenes to settle the aftermath of the war. Who does Wilson appoint to head the U.S. delegation to the Paris Peace Conference? Paul Warburg. According to Wilson, only Warburg is qualified to run the Fed or to represent America at the Paris Peace Conference. Who does Wilson appoint to be his economic advisor at the conference? Bernard Baruch, the same man he made those pledges to before running. And always at his side, Edward Mandelhouse, the banker's front man. Now, Wilson's chief proposal, of course, at the Paris Peace Conference, the one he's most famous for, was the League of Nations. Many people think he originated that concept. He did not. It originated with House, who we see here at the Paris Peace Conference, and the bankers. Ray Stannard Banker was, Woody Wilson's official biography said this, Practically nothing, not a single idea in the covenant of the League was original with the president. Charles Seymour, who was House's official biographer, said, 
Wilson approved the House draft almost in its entirety, and his own rewriting of it was practically confined to phraseology. Now, what were the bankers after? They were after a world government. Now, some people might say, and Mr. Perloff, you said at the outset these uh, establishment guys wanted an all-powerful world government. I got news for you that the League of Nations was not all-powerful, man. It was very weak. That's right, because the bankers understood our principle. If you want to boil a frog, you've got to put him in lukewarm water, and he'll never know he's been boiled. You start with a weak world government, because in 1919, there's no way the sovereign nations of the world would have put up with an all-powerful world government. But how did America react to the Versailles Treaty that created the League of Nations? Well, the Founding Fathers, in their wisdom, had said that no president can make a treaty on his own. It has to be ratified by the Senate. The Senate did not approve of Wilson's idea of the League of Nations, and they refused to ratify the Versailles Treaty, so he didn't enter the League. How did the bankers respond? They're still in Paris. They are ripped when they find out that America's not going to join the League. So they held a series of meetings hosted by Edward Mandel House, culminating with a dinner at the Majestic Hotel in Paris. And at this last dinner, they resolved to form a new organization in the United States that would so change the climate of opinion here that would enter the realm of world government. And that organization, the Council on Foreign Relations, incorporated in New York City two years later. Now then, if you look at the original membership roster of the Council, you'll find something interesting. Almost every man on it was either a banker or an attorney for J.P. Morgan and Company. For example, the founding president was John W. Davis, who was Morgan's personal attorney. The founding vice president was Paul Cravath, attorney for J.P. Morgan and Company. The founding chairman was Russell Leffingwell, partner in J.P. Morgan and Company. Now, don't you think it's kind of odd that a foreign policy association should comprise solely bankers and lawyers working for J.P. Morgan? Well, they thought it looked a little funny, too. So uh, they decided to add a few college professors to the ranks. But guess what? The professors all came from universities indebted to J.P. Morgan and Company for large endowments. They're all screened, and they're all men that they knew they could count upon to attend meetings at the council and return to their campuses and tell their students that if America were truly civilized, she would join the League of Nations. Now, eventually, the Rock bless you, eventually the Rockefellers brought in their people, and David Rockefeller was the chairman for many, many years, is still the honorary chairman of the council. Now, how does the council influence American foreign policy? One way is through its books, its many books on foreign policy, which are generally, uh, you, can, you can count on them getting good reviews in the New York Times book review section. Also, through its journal, Foreign Affairs. Now, a lot of people, most people never heard of Foreign Affairs, but you know what? Time Magazine calls this the most influential journal in print. It's like the Bible of the State Department. Uh, it said that if you want to know what American foreign policy will be doing tomorrow, just read Foreign Affairs today. But the most important way, I'm sure, that the Council influences American foreign policy is by directly supplying cabinet-level personnel for Washington. At the time I wrote The Shadows of Power, but that was 20 years ago, at that time when Reagan was president, even at that time, 14 secretaries of state, 14 secretaries of the Treasury and 11 defense secretaries have been recruited from the ranks of the council. You're not talking about a huge organization. In the days of Kennedy, only about 1,000 members. It is up to about 6,000 now. Uh, Bill Clinton picked 12 cabinet members from the council. Virtually every CIA director and Fed chairman has come from the council. If you want to know how the current candidates stack up, um, the Washington Post this year published a list of their uh, top security and foreign policy advisors. For McLean, 18 out of 34 belong to the council. 
for Obama, 10 out of 23, and for Hillary, 14 out of 21. So if any one of them gets elected, you can expect you're not going to see too much change. Now, what foreign policy programs has the council actually created? I'm going to take three examples from right after World War II. What was the successor organization to the League of Nations? The United Nations. Now, what I was told in public school was this. My teacher said, well, boys and girls, here's how the UN got started. After World War II, all the nations of the world were really sick of war. So they decided to get together and form an organization that would stop war. That's not how it happened. It was started with a group called the Informal Agenda Group. It's a group of Council on Foreign Relations members. If that title sounds bland and innocuous, it's designed to be that way because they didn't want any snoopy congressmen prying into what they were doing. But they drew up the original plans for the UN. They called in three attorneys, all members of the CFR, who approved of it and said it would be constitutional. Then they had an audience with President Roosevelt, who also approved the plan and announced it to the public the very same day and then made that the central priority of his post-war planning, establishment of the UN. And when the UN was founded in San Francisco in 1945, 47 of the American delegates were members of the council. It was a CFR show all the way. How about the Marshall Plan, the post-war plan to help Europe? People will say, well, uh, that was thought up by General George Marshall. He announced it at a Harvard commencement speech. That's what it says in your history book, and he did announce it at a commencement speech at Harvard, but it had nothing to do with planning it. Actually, it was all laid out in a study group at the Council on Foreign Relations with David Rockefeller as its secretary. Originally, they were going to call it the Truman Plan and have President Truman announce it. But after some deliberation, they said, you know, if Truman announces it, the Republicans might not go for it. You know, they might call this a new deal for Europe. So General Marshall was selected because they felt that as a general, he would appear to be a political neutral, and that plan worked. The plan got bipartisan support. Well, what were they trying to do with the Marshall Plan? We're told it was charity for Europe. Well, for one thing, corporations linked to the CFR were given tax dollars to send these goods to Europe. But more significant was this. The man on the left is John J. McCloy of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was in charge of Marshall Plan funds in Europe. And the man on the right is Jean Monnet, the founder of the common market. Time magazine called him the father of Europe. In 1947, Monnet sent his people to McCloy and said they needed money to start a European Union movement. McCloy turned over unlimited Marshall Plan funds, what were called counterpart funds, to Monet's people to start the European Union movement. Those funds were used to host the first Council of Europe meeting in 1949 to found universities would advocate uh, European Union, to fund the European Union youth movement, and to fund the political campaigns of politicians who would advocate a European Union. European Union didn't just happen recently, it started back in those days, and Americans never knew their tax dollars were being used for this purpose. By the way, John J. McCloy, a true insider's insider, when he returned to the United States, he became chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, he was also one of the first presidents of the World Bank. Now, you've heard of the World Bank, an international monetary fund. Uh, how did they get started? Your history books say they were started at the Bretton Woods Conference. Well, that's true. Officially, they were started at the Bretton Woods Conference, but all the groundwork was first laid by the Council on Foreign Relations at what they call their Economic and Finance Group. In other words, the Council on Foreign Relations is a factory of American foreign policy, but how many people even know it exists? Well, I would hope that listeners of this podcast and viewers of this vodcast, at the very least, would be able to identify the existence of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
But the point is well taken that the vast majority of the public have either never heard of the organization at all or have absolutely no idea about its history, its membership, or its influence. So that's why it is so important to highlight these uh, these points and to connect those dots for people so they understand the importance of these behind-the-scenes machinations that make the carving up the, of the world possible, whether that be by simply drawing lines on a map like in the aftermath of World War One, or whether that's an ideological carving up of the world, the occupying of people's minds with an ideology of globalization, for example, that makes the once unthinkable idea of global government seem like an inevitability. That is an incredible thing to achieve, and it's something that is achieved through slow, careful, painstaking, well-plotted agendas and work that goes on behind the scenes in things like the Council on Foreign Relations in a process that lasts decades and generations. And that's something that's almost impossible for the average person out there to wrap their minds around as they struggle to make ends meet on a day-to-day -day basis. It's difficult for us to imagine that there are people who are literally trying to plan and plot out things that will happen decades in the future through a slow conditioning of the public. Well, today we've been establishing the ideas and concepts for today's episode by looking quite uh, specifically at World War I and what arose out of that. But of course, this is a principle that can be applied to other areas, other time frames, other uh, periods of history, and should be. And I certainly hope that you'll go and start applying this in your own research in different time periods in different societies. But in order to bring things up to date, of course, we can see the way that this exact same process has been used by the dominant imperial power of our era, the American Empire, to perpetuate its hegemony and to further its agenda around the world since World War II. After World War II, three important trends emerge in the Middle East. The rise of United States power, the growing importance of oil, and the renewal of Western rivalry. First, let's look at how the United States eclipsed Britain as the leading Western power in the Middle East. Iran was the turning point here. In 1953, the British wished wish to overthrow the democratically elected government of Iran because its leader, Mohammad Mazadeh, had nationalized Britain's oil company. Unable to carry out the task by itself, Britain turned to the United States for help. The CIA obliged by overthrowing Mazadeh and installing the Shah who was to protect the West's oil interests. In the aftermath, it became clear that the United States was now the senior Western power in the Middle East, with Britain as a junior partner. Second, control of oil became the West's principal goal in the Middle East, rather than the protection of the route to India. The United States, once the world's leading oil producer, found that it could no longer meet its energy requirements from domestic production. In 1970, the U.S. production began to decline, and shortly thereafter, an embargo by foreign oil-producing nations dealt a serious blow to the American economy. Thus, control of Middle East oil became seen as central to United States national security. Third, the Sykes-Picot Treaty did not lay to rest all Western rivalry in the Middle East. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union continued Russia's historic policy of southern expansion by attempting to forge alliances with Middle East nations. The United States and Britain countered with the formation of the anti-communist Baghdad Pact in 1955. The United States saw the Soviet Union's 1979 invasion of Afghanistan as a step towards Soviet hegemony in the Persian Gulf. 
the Carter administration responded in 1980 with a declaration that the United States would use military force if necessary to defend its national interest in the Persian Gulf. It's interesting to recall that Britain fought three wars in Afghanistan in the 19th and early 20th centuries to prevent Russia from expanding its influence south. How successful has the United States been in its role as Britain's successor in the Middle East? Let's look at the post-World War II history of Egypt, Iraq, and Iran, three of the most important countries in the region. In Egypt, the pro-Western monarchy was overthrown in 1952, and the new Republican government, under Gamal Abdel Nasser, nationalized the Suez Canal and pursued a foreign policy independent of the West. However, Egypt again came under Western influence following Nasser's death in 1967. Since 1981, the country has been ruled by pro-Western Hosni Mubarak, whose regime relies largely on American financial support. In Iraq in 1958, the pro-Western monarchy created by Britain was overthrown in a popular revolt. The new government of General Abdul Karim Qasim withdrew from the Baghdad Pact, opened diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, and adopted a non-aligned stance. Qasim legalized the Communist Party, instituted agrarian reforms, supported Arab nationalist movements in Algeria and Palestine, and seized 98% of land owned by the British-controlled Iraqi oil company. He was overthrown in 1963 in a CIA-backed Ba'athist coup and killed the next day after a show trial. One of the men who attempted to assassinate Qasim was none other than Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein proved to be somewhat of a disappointment to the United States as he nationalized the Western-owned Iraq Petroleum Company in the 1970s. He was deposed by the United States and its allies in an invasion in 2003. Iran remained under the rule of the pro-Western Shah for 26 years until he was overthrown in 1978 and a revolution that produced an Islamic Republic. Iran's relations with the United States further deteriorated when Iranian students, fearing a CIA-backed coup as in 1953, seized the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. In the 1980s, the United States and many other countries supported Iraq in an eight-year war against Iran, aimed at seizing oil fields in the Persian Gulf. Iran suffered between 500,000 and 1 million casualties in the war. The United States continues to have poor relations with Iran. The U.S. maintains a large fleet off Iran's coast, and both major American parties talk of war. The Sykes-Picot Treaty imposed on the region by Britain and France at the end of World War I, still casts a long shadow. The dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire created a power vacuum in the Middle East, which continues to be an open invitation to foreign intervention and international conflict. Whether the nations of the Middle East will gain control of their own destiny, either individually or collectively, remains to be seen. Well, that's as good a five-minute summary of the situation as any. And again, I hope the point is taken that from the chaos of conflict and war can come the order of really being able to affect different parts of the globe and to really play this game of grand imperial strategy for the imperial benefit of the empire. 
And of course, in this day and age, that's the American empire, but the principle holds, as I say, throughout different societies, different civilizations, throughout different historical periods. So it's important that we understand this because this is the game that's being played at the level that's well above where you and I are in our average day-to-day lives. These are the people who are playing the games for all the marbles, and unfortunately, they're getting better and better at that game, even as we don't even understand that there is a game being played. And yes, this very much relates to what's happening in our own day and age. Basically, my question is, why is it the United States' responsibility to protect and our responsibility to intervene and our responsibility and right to secure territory and other people's you know, rightful home? And where did this exceptionalist attitude come from? Like, where did it originate? Because if that happened, on our soil, it sure would not be accepted. So, um, so it's, it's a very good question. Uh, I tend to see this a little more like the French coming to our aid during the revolution, which we've, we were actually very grateful for and wanted. But, but I think you get to the heart of a very fundamental misunderstanding. It is not America's responsibility to protect. It absolutely is not our responsibility to protect. It is the international community's responsibility to protect. Every head of state signed on to the 2005 UN summit document that spells out the responsibility to protect. The Security Council then invoked the responsibility to protect in 2006 and again in the Libya case and in Cote d'Ivoire. It is it is an emerging norm of international law, and that's why I say it's such a fundamental change. Um, you have heard how on the Security Council we will press for a Chapter 7 resolution incorporating the Geneva communique, repeating the call for a transitional government, including members of the opposition, and formed on the basis of mutual consent. And we will soon be having those debates, and they will be difficult in the Security Council. It will help enormously if in 100 countries the Russian and Chinese embassies all hear very strongly the views of the nations gathered in this room and make no mistake uh, about it. Now, as we know, Russia has expressed concerns about the report saying it's not a balanced assessment. Why is that, in your opinion? It's an artificial country. It's a typical product of the Western colonialists after the first Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Just like Libya, just like Iraq, in other words, Italian, English, French colonialism, whereas Egypt and Tunisia are old countries where the Arab Spring could work. It still hasn't worked completely. There is still a job to do with the military. But in these countries, you have endless amount of fault lines, so contradictions. Between Sunni and Shia, for instance, more than 50% Sunni. Between Kurds and Arabs, and the Alawis related to the Shia, would be about 13%. Then you have Christians, you have Maronites, you have Jews. The minorities are very much afraid of a Sunni victory. They are afraid of that, and the Shia, the Alawis, have held a kind of protective hand over them. So there you have the thing going on inside. 
Yes, the Syrian crisis has to be seen within that historical framework that we were looking at before, going all the way back to World War I, where Syria was carved out of the remains of the old Ottoman Empire and handed over to the French, and how that history has played out to the current day and age, where once again the imperial powers are playing their game and really trying to uh, split up the country into warring factions. And this is part of an agenda that goes even further into playing into different parts of that uh, that strategy. And ultimately, the, the end road uh, is not Damascus, but is Tehran. So people who want more information on that would be well served to look at Land Destroyer Report, which has uh, done a lot of excellent work on that subject, and specifically highlighted a Brookings Institute report called Which Path to Persia? talking about exactly the type of concept that we've been talking about today, about how to really uh, carve up uh, the world for the benefit of the Anglo-American hierarchy and empire, and uh, and specifically how to get to Iran by going through um, Damascus and Syria. So again, this is all part of the same types of strategies that we've seen being used at demonstrably, as we've seen today for a century, but of course it goes back into the, the sands of time, and, uh, and once again, once we've established the principle, the concept, we can at least understand the game that is being played, and thus be better situated to defend ourselves against it. Again, there's a whirlwind of information even in what we have covered today, let alone the thousands of years of history and all of the surrounding context for what we've covered that we haven't covered today. But on that note, I will once again ask you to take up this research for yourself and to continue fleshing out this concept. But uh, suffice it to say, for all the would-be world rulers and dictators out there, I think we've established one of the uh, the key methods that you have to use in order to establish your your dictatorship of the, uh, the, the region or the world in general. And that is the order out of chaos that we see them continuing to use. So once again, if we are at least warned about what the plan is and how it's accomplished we at least have a stand a chance of standing up against it. Well, that's it for today. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for today's episode and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Since March 07, so puzzling. UN launch net, hunch when tax coming in like Pavlov. They treat us like dogs to use less than them. Who? Rockefellers at the top, pledge allegiance to the rock, eyes wide shut down. PhDs make disease for militaries. Don't think they wouldn't lie for the IPCC. Can't get the weather for the weekend, please. Telling me in 20 years, we guaranteed to freeze. Newsweek cover for a 70s scheme. Global cooling back then.